So let's stand together for the reading of the Word of God, 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. See how very much our Father loves us, for He calls us His children, and that's what we are. But the people who belong to this world don't recognize that we are God's children because they don't know Him. Dear friends, we are already God's children, but He's not yet shown us what we will be like when Christ appears. But we do know that we will be like Him, for we will see Him as He really is. And all who have this eager expectation will keep themselves pure, just as He is pure. Everyone who sins is breaking God's law, for sin is contrary to the law of God. And you know that Jesus came to take away our sins, and there is no sin in Him. Anyone who continues to live in Him will not sin. But anyone who keeps on sinning doesn't know him or understand who he is. Dear children, don't let anyone deceive you about this. When people do what is right, it shows that they're righteous, even as Christ is righteous. But when people keep on sinning, it shows that they belong to the devil who's been sinning since the beginning. But the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. Those who have been born into God's family do not make a practice of sinning because God's life is in them. So they can't keep on sinning because they are children of God. So now we can tell who are the children of God and who are children of the devil. Anyone who does not live righteously and does not love other believers does not belong to God. Heavenly Father, as we open your word and you speak of your great love for us, that love that you showed to us in the person of your son in his death on the cross that we've just sung about. We would ask, Holy Spirit of God, that you would be our teacher, that you would fill us with an awareness and an experience of your fatherly love, God, for us, the love of Christ shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit to understand what it means to be children of your family and to be transformed into your likeness. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Thank you, you may be seated. <clears throat> when I was a boy about uh, probably 12, 13 years old, uh, we went and visited my great-grandmother on my mom's side in Brooklyn, New York. I'm not sure where she got the name, but everybody referred to her as Deer. That was just the name she went by. And she was the matriarch of the family, there's no question, very, um, uh, almost an aristocratic lady. She, she grew up in uh, West Virginia and then married a guy from New York, and they made their home in Brooklyn. But I remember being in that, in that home, and she looked at me, and she said to my mother, she said, he's just like Donald Lyons, which would have been my matriarchal grandfather. Now, I don't know about you know, you, but when you're 12, 13 years old, you really don't, don't want to be told that you look like your grandfather. It's just not exactly what you're up for. But later, the more I thought about it, I realized that she was kind of on target, that not only in terms of personality, but he had an incredible aptitude for math. Uh, he's a very good businessman, and my, uh, one of my uncles said that he could, he could actually add up a long column of numbers faster and more accurately than anyone else. 
And I, I think that's where I got my enjoyment for math. And I, I, you'll probably hold this against me for the rest of my life, but my favorite subject in high school was algebra. I just dug it. I really thought it was fun solving problems. Sorry about that. You may just tune me out for the rest of the message. I don't know. But Grandpa Lyon, something else about him, in his 20s, he became an alcoholic, wound up in the Bowery of New York during the Depression, and later came to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, and God changed his life from the inside out. He became a new creature in Christ, became a child of God, was absolutely amazingly changed. And, and his faith in Jesus Christ, I think, was part of what God used to influence me to become a follower of Jesus. So there is that family likeness. Now, maybe in your family, you've had someone say to you about a, about a child or even about you, you have your father's eyes. You've got, she has her mother's smile. He's got a little bit of his dad's sense of humor. He's got this trait, or she has this trait, this family trait, and there's something about the family likeness that is seen in them. What John's addressing in this passage is when we experience the Father's love, you will reflect the Father's likeness. When you experience the love of the Heavenly Father, it is transforming you. It will change you. You will reflect the Father's likeness. So much so that it's like two sides to the same coin. If you have experienced the Father's love, you have to reflect His likeness. It's impossible not to. And so the one ties into the other. It's what it's all about. When God's children experience His love, the Father's love, they will reflect His likeness. I want you to notice in the very first verse in this passage we're looking at, it says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. He starts off with an exclamation. He says, behold, look at this, consider this, reflect on this. Think about this love of the Father. He, he's, it's like he's shining a light on that and saying, I want to spotlight the love of the Father for his children. And he talks about that love that, that word that means sacrifice of what God did through his son. Remember, John also is the author of the Gospel of John. And in John 3, 16, he's speaking to Nicodemus about what it means to become a part of God's family through the new birth, through regeneration. And he has this verse that if people know any verse of the Bible, they'll know this one, John 3, 16, right? Say it with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God's love demonstrated in sacrifice. But he says here, think about this love of God that he has lavished on us, the NIV says. He has given to us a Father that we should be called the children of God. When I think about God's lavish love that he's shown to us to make us his children, I think about like standing under Niagara Falls and having all that water cascade. God is saying his love cascades down upon us in making us his children. What an amazing, what an amazing thing. And he said, that's who we are. That's our new identity and our new relationship. John also in his gospel wrote in the first chapter, 
that Jesus came to his own and his own received him not. That is, the Jewish nation didn't welcome him as their Messiah. But in the 12th verse, he says, but as many as received him, that is Jesus, to them gave he the power or the authority to become the children of God, even those that believe on his name. So friend, I want to remind you, if you have repented of your sin and you put your trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, God's lavish love cascading down upon you has made you a part of his family. And you weren't always a part of his family. Matter of fact, John also records the words of Jesus in John 8, 44, that he said to, to people who are religious people, you are of your father, the devil. Well, how does somebody move from being in Satan's family to being in God's family? It's called the new birth. It's called this transformation that God does in us by his lavish love. You know, this morning, early, early this morning, I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about the words of a a hymn. Don't worry, I'm not going to sing it for you this morning. You'd get up and leave. Um, But the the words of this hymn, How Deep the Father's Love for Us by Stuart Townsend, I want to just read you the words of this. Think about what John's saying. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only son to make a wretch, a a broken sinner like me, his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss, the Father turns his face away, as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice cry out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. That is lavish love from the Father. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's how we become a part of God's family. And friends, that is good news. That's what we celebrated in the Lord's table just moments ago. The lavish love of the Father. My question to you this morning, have you experienced that love? And are you living in the experience of that love? This holy, glorious, powerful all-knowing, sovereign God invites you to be a part of his family through the death of his son, Jesus Christ, and his resurrection, and invites you in and says, I want you to be a part of my family. My family. Have you experienced that love? Are you living in the experience of that love? You see, as God's children, not only do we experience his love, but we anticipate the Father's transformation. Because look at verse 3. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself, even as he is pure. In other words, that experience of God's love as our Father changes us. It changes us because it transforms our lives. Look at verse 2. He said, Beloved, we are God's children, and what we will be has not been, has yet appeared. In verse 1 he says, this is why the world doesn't know us, because it didn't know him. So a couple of things John says about this transformation. He said the world doesn't understand the Christian, doesn't get it, can't relate to it. 
They don't understand our new identity and our new relationship and the change in our life. Don't expect a world that has not yet experienced that love to understand you and understand your relationship with God. We don't have to have the approval of this world because we have the approval of a heavenly father. We don't have to have the world slapping us on on the back and agreeing with us because we have something better. We have the love of a heavenly father. He said, don't expect the world to do that because they didn't understand Jesus either. So he says, listen, in this transformation, the world doesn't understand our lives, but it didn't understand Christ. But then he says this, the present doesn't anticipate the future. The present doesn't anticipate the future. He said, beloved, we are God's children. That's that's who we are in this relationship now in the present. And what we will be hasn't yet appeared. What we will be hasn't yet happened. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. Now look up here for a moment. I want you to see something. When it comes to what the Bible teaches about salvation, what the Bible teaches about our deliverance from sin, it it, it speaks of it in three different phases. In, In our change in our position before God, that is becoming his children through the new birth, that is a positional change, a relational change, embracing that by faith and grace. Then there's this progressive ongoing change that we call the Christian life. It's sometimes called sanctification. It is that ongoing process of transformation. And then there is this, transforma- this change that's going to happen, glorification. So in the past, positional change by faith that we now have a new relationship with God. In the present, continual, ongoing change. And in the future, we're going to be changed and glorification. So here he's saying, we are now children of God. This is what's happening now. And he's going to talk about that ongoing process. But here's what's coming. So our present doesn't anticipate the future. My friends, what he's saying here is that when, when Jesus appears, when he comes back, we will be made like him. Again, we're made like him positionally in our relationship with God. We are being made like him progressively in the Christian life. But when Jesus comes back, we're going to be made like him completely. You know what that means? If you're over 30, it means you get a new body. No, anybody that's a believer will get a new body. There's something about being over 30 that makes it sound better. Okay, we get a glorified body. We get one that's like unto his body. Matter of fact, listen to these words from Philippians chapter 3, 20 and 21. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So in other words, we're going to have a body like Christ's resurrection and glorified body. We're going to be like Jesus. Now, here's what that doesn't mean. You're not, Jesus is God. You're not going to be God. But you're going to be like Jesus in his perfect humanity. In other words, no more death. No more cancer. No more heart attacks. No more disease. No more sin. No more war. No more COVID-19. No more of any of that. It's all going to be gone because we're going to be glorified and be with him because we're going to see him as he is. So the anticipated hope of the child of God is that something is coming that's better than you ever dared to dream. And if for a moment you could see what it's like to be with Jesus in heaven, in that glorified body, it would change everything about your life now. 
That's what he's talking about. Everyone that has this hope in him purifies himself because he is pure, because it changes everything when you know what you're ultimately going to be like and who you're becoming like now. I wish someone, when I was 12 years old, had taken me aside and put their arm around my shoulder and said, Jim, I just want to tell you one thing about the Christian life that will help you your entire Christian life. And if they had told me, the big idea of the Christian life is to be conformed to Jesus. To become like Jesus in your thinking. To become like Jesus in the affections of your heart. To become like Jesus in your relationships. To become like Jesus in your character, to become like Jesus in your attitudes, to become like Jesus in your behavior, to become like Jesus in your values, to become like Jesus in the way he held the word of God in his heart and the way he prayed, to become like Jesus in your life mission, to become like Jesus is the biggest idea of the Christian life. It's why we were positionally changed, it's how we're progressively being changed, and it's the ultimate goal of our glorification to become like Jesus. We're going to become like him because we're going to see him as he is. Sometimes you may have wondered about when people quote Romans 8:28, all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are what? Called according to his purpose. And you look at your life and say, right now my life is a mess and all things aren't working together for good. It's because we take it out of context. The next verse tells us what the good is. The good is that we be conformed to the image of Christ. From God's perspective, the good is not having an easy life. From God's perspective, the good is you being shaped more and more to be like Jesus in anticipation of what you're going to be when we see him and are made like him, when the very best is yet to come. Now, this hope, he says, motivates our transformation, motivates our purity. It's interesting, he uses this word hope, everyone who has this hope in him. I like the words of John Stott. He said, hope involves a confident expectation of the future, a trust in God's provision, and the patience of waiting for him. Hope is this expectation of the future. And he said, when we expect this, we're going to live this way now. I'm afraid that many times as Christians, we've missed the whole point because he says everyone that has his hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. I don't know about you, but um, we have two refrigerators in our home, and both of them have water filters in them that have to be regularly changed. We also have a furnace in our house that requires that I check out and change the furnace filter on a regular basis. It occurred to me, we can be more concerned about the purity of our water or our air than we are about the purity of our lives. But God's very concerned about the purity of your life. Everyone who has this hope in them purifies himself even as Christ is pure. And that changes, that change of transformation. God is wanting to change you and transform you into his likeness in every area of your life. That's what he's wanting to do. So as God's children, we need to reflect the Father's likeness. This week when I was thinking about this, I went on the internet and looked at pictures where they, where they have this family likeness thing going and the traits of a father and his son and a mother and her daughter or, or different family members and you see the, the similar eyes or the similar nose, the similar face and the family traits. So what kind of family traits are we to be taking on to be able to demonstrate our likeness to God. Because when you experience God's love, you reflect his likeness. So look at what he says about this. 
everyone who makes a practice of sinning practices lawlessness, for sin is lawlessness. So he gives us two definitions of sin here. And one of the things that is, this, this changed life is, results in a purification from sin. The, the word sin means to miss the mark. It's the idea of a, a target and you, you don't hit the target. Or being on a path and varying from the path. And he's saying sin means it's missing the target of God's holiness, missing the target of God's righteousness. You've missed the mark in your life. And then he uses this word lawlessness. He said, whoever makes a practice of sinning is also practicing lawlessness. What does that mean? It means we disregard the authority of God's word in our life and put self in the place of that authority. And friends, if you want to have a broken life, that's the fastest way to do it. Ignore the instruction manual of the Creator. And ignore the one who loves you so much that he died for you. Ignore his word and its implications for your life. Just ignore that, and you will self-destruct sooner or later. You're going to run into the reality that God has spoken with wisdom here because he loves you as your father and is saying, I want you to be able to live this way. And sin is lawlessness because in sin we're saying, I am my own law, I am my own authority, I'm going to do whatever I want. Friends, if you're living that way, I just want you to know, you will continue to crash and burn. And you're going to continue to have pain in your life until you recognize that it's only under God's authority that you find freedom. A train only has freedom when it's on the tracks, and you only have freedom when you're following God's word. Lawlessness brings brokenness, and that's sin. So purity from that. He goes on to, by by the way, John is not suggesting here that we live a life of perfection and never sin. If you go back to chapter 1, he makes that clear. The one who says, I have not sinned makes him a liar, and the one who says, I don't have a sin nature is self-deceiving. He says that in 1 John chapter 1 and and from verse 6 to 8. And by the way, if you're here today and you say, I have eradicated the sin nature and I have no more bent towards sin, I never sin anymore, I just want to talk to someone in your family. We'll We'll get it straight right after the service, okay? Because I just ask a few questions. And if, you th- if, if I thought that, you could just talk to Bert. She'd make it straight. She'd tell you, okay? You could ask my kids. You could ask my grandkids. No, he's not saying sinless perfection, but he's saying a change in pattern, a change in life. He said, um, Jesus appeared to take away our sins. In him there is no sin. That's why we have this, this desire to have a broken pattern. The one who abides or continues in him like the branch in the vine, will, no one who abides in him will keep on sinning. That is a pattern or a lifestyle of sin. And no one who keeps on sinning really has experienced his revelation of himself, seen him, or known him. Matter of fact, he's making this really clear. He said, little children, don't let anybody lie to you, deceive you, that the, whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. So there's a changed pattern of sin here. But there's also then the practice of righteousness. So negatively stated, he said there's, there is a purification from sin. Positively stated, he says there's the practice of righteousness. Righteousness always involves conformity to a standard, an absolute standard. Now I'm going to illustrate that. If you're going to build something, you're probably going to take a tape measure and measure before you cut. Matter of fact, good carpenters say, measure twice, cut 
once. Ladies, if you're going to make something, you're going to measure it first. My wife was actually uh, hemming some curtains last night, and she had her measure out there, and she was measuring it, and she measured twice before she hemmed once. It's good to do, okay? Righteousness implies a standard that is absolute. In this case, righteousness has to do with a reflection of God. God himself is the standard of righteousness. His word reflects who he is. So this word from God reflects not only his wisdom, but his righteousness. And and so God himself is that absolute standard of righteousness. And what does it look like in our life? Righteousness has to do with your character and your conduct. Character and conduct. Character is who you are. it's, It's the very attributes of your life. Do you reflect likeness to Jesus Christ in your character? One way of looking at that is the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5. Many other character passages in the New Testament. But then your conduct, does your conduct then reflect that character of righteousness? Now, friends, none of us have arrived in righteousness, right? We understand that. But in the Beatitudes, Jesus said this, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. And our problem often is we're hungering and thirsting after sin rather than hungering and thirsting after righteousness. And sin is habit-forming and addictive and will destroy you, but righteousness will bring spiritual and personal health. So he said, listen, you need to, you need to have this practice of righteousness in your life. Why? Because The seed of the new birth is in you. Look at verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, but God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. Do you hear that? Cannot keep on sinning. Let me be clear about this. If you claim to be a child of God, that you have this new identity and relationship with him, that you claim to have experienced his love, and you claim that you someday are going to have this future hope of being transformed into his likeness. But right now in between, there's no hunger and thirst for righteousness. There's no hatred of sin. There's no desire for purity. Matter of fact, you're hungering and thirsting after sin, but not hungering and thirsting after God. And the pattern and the habits and the, 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 the way you're living, the path of your life is reflecting the opposite of righteousness. Then friends, I want to say something to you. Don't claim this, and don't anticipate this if this isn't happening in your life. Because in God's design, in this passage, it weaves together. The changed identity and relationship leads to a changed practice with sin and righteousness that leads to a future hope of something that's going to be transforming. It seems to me that in the church of Jesus Christ, at least in the United States today, The idea seems to be, how close to living a life of sin can I live and still be a Christian? I remember years ago, very first mission trip that Bert and I ever took, we went to Peru, South America. As a part of that trip, we went to a place called Machu Picchu, which is the lost city of the Incas, way, way up high in the the mountains. Now, you need to know that I have a fear of heights, but I have a logical fear of heights. I don't fear tall buildings, and I don't fear walking across you know, a, 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 a bridge. I've walked the Golden Gate Bridge twice. That, that doesn't make me afraid. But when I saw my dear wife, who has no fear of heights, standing with her feet over the edge of a cliff that goes down almost a mile, I said, honey, and I'm way back here, I said, would you just back up a little bit? 
Friends, sometimes those who claim to be God's children are living with their feet over the edge of a precipice of sin and saying, I want to see how much of the pleasures of sin I can live in and still call myself a Christian. My friends, that's foolish. Back away from that and say, God is saying, if you are my child that I have loved and you're anticipating this future transformation, then right now, right here, you should be seeking purity. You should be, have a broken pattern of sin. You should seek after righteousness because that's the transformation God the Father wants to bring in your life. And then he says one other thing. At the end of verse 10, he kind of does what John does often in his letter that he, he creates a stitch from what he has been talking about to what he's going to be talking about. So in verse 10 he says, it's evident that you who are the children of God and the children of the devil, whoever does not practice righteous is not of God, nor is the one who doesn't love his brothers. So that love of the brothers is where he's going in the rest of chapter 3 and into chapter 4. So here's the, here's the, the issue, priority of love for the believers. Do you love other Christians. You've heard the saying, birds of a feather, what? Flock together. So in other words, we associate with people whose values and activities we identify with. It's always concerning to me when someone claims to be a part of God's family, but doesn't really love other Christians and wants to avoid people who are pursuing purity and righteousness in their life. It causes me to kind of question what what does the Bible say about that? If you don't love other believers, are you part of the family? Have you experienced that lavish love cascading down upon you that makes you a part of the family of God? He says, listen, that has to change you now. Changes your whole attitude and perspective on sin. You're, you're seeking after purity. You're hungering after righteousness. You are loving what we're doing today in worshiping God and fellowshipping with God's people. I have um, this one picture in my office. It's a picture by Rembrandt, it's not an original, it's a print. The Prodigal Returns. The reason I have that there is that it reminds me every day what it is to be a child of God. The picture shows the father embracing the son who's kneeling down in his tattered, dirty clothes, one sandal off, one on, others in the shadows, and the father's embracing him. I love that picture. For my own benefit spiritually, look at that every day and remember, I'm a child of God, redeemed by the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And I want everyone who walks in my office to be able to see that. And and many times I'll point to it and say, that, that's who I am right there. That's my father. And that's who you are. And he wants to be your father. So my questions to you this morning are this. Have you embraced the father's lavish love upon you by trusting in his son, Jesus Christ? That's where it all begins. As many as received him, to them gave he the power, the authority to become the children of God. Have you embraced that? If not, I just want to invite you that the death of Jesus upon the cross and his resurrection means there's forgiveness, there's cleansing, there's restoration available. Have you embraced the Father's lavish love for you through his Son? Are you responding to the Father's love and living a life of hope and purity? 
In other words, this, this changes you, friends, now. You, you can't just embrace this and, and then say, I'm going to live for myself. I'm going to live for sin. I'm going to run after the pleasures of sin. No. It means that you have to have a yearning for purity and righteousness in your life now. A transformation of your life that, be, that is the response to this and the anticipation of this. And are you being transformed into the Father's likeness? You know, as long as I've been a Christian, there always seems to be that point in my life where the Holy Spirit is putting his finger on an area of my life that needs change. The conviction of the Spirit, it seems like I keep encountering that issue in the Bible. And, and the challenge by others around me. How, how about you? Where is God transforming your life right now? And if you don't have an answer to that question, I want to ask you to really say, God, what is the area of my life in which you are trying to transform me, to cause me to pursue righteousness and purity and, and a change of life and love for the brother? Where is God changing you? I believe God loves you too much to leave you the way he found you. That he's all about transformation. We talk about being transformed followers of Jesus around here, and we mean that. That ongoing process of change. But friends, here's the great thing about that. It's a joy to live in the lavish love of my Father and to have that love cascading into my life, changing me now. As I look forward with hope to all that is coming when I'm made to be like him. And friends, someday in heaven, when we look back, we don't want to say, I wasted my life because I lived for self and sin. What we want to say, Heavenly Father, thank you for the transformation of my life by your love. I trust you. I worship you. I celebrate that very love of the cross. I celebrate the transformation of my life. And now in heaven, I worship and glorify you. And in a new heaven and a new earth, I serve you because you are my Father. Let's pray together. Father, how great your love for us. Lavished upon us through the cross of Jesus. That love that is shed abroad in our heart by your Holy Spirit. And as we have experienced that love and its transforming power, God, may it change our practice of sin. May it lead to a life of increased desire for purity. That we are seeking to conform our lives to Christ and to his, to his character and his commands. We're seeking to love one another. God, may we take on Take on your traits. May we reflect your likeness because we're part of your family. In Jesus' name, amen.